Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 49 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today, we're continuing our discussion, how do we comfort the suffering? And we're going to talk about some bad things to say to those who are grieving. So welcome into the show today. I do want to encourage you to share episodes on social media, on Facebook, things like that. I also want to encourage you to go check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. I haven't said it in a while, so I might as well say it today. Our goal is not necessarily to get people to read through the Bible in a year, although that's awesome. Our goal is to get people daily in their Bibles. And so what we do to facilitate that goal is we read four chapters of the Bible together a day, going from the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan, and then we ask one big Bible question a day. So the show's usually in the neighborhood of 30 minutes or so, and we get a lot of scripture and we get some pretty hopefully fascinating questions and interesting answers on what topics the scripture brings up. And if you share that on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and whatever, uh, hopefully we reach new people on a daily basis who want to join with us and learn about the Bible and hear the Bible and go deep in it. Because when we hear the Word of God, it builds faith in us and it bears a lot of fruit. So today's readings include Exodus chapter 1, which means we've completed the entire book of Genesis together if you've been with us from day one. Go team! Sadly, for the Israelites, at least sadly in the short term, Exodus opens with an ominous bit of foreshadowing in chapter 1 verse 8. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. In Luke chapter 4, we will see how Jesus overcomes the attacks of Satan in the desert by the expert use of the sword of the word of God. 1 Corinthians 5 is all about church discipline a biblical practice that is sadly neglected in many of our churches. Our focus remains in the book of Job today, and we will be reading chapter 17 and 18 and asking the question, how can we help and encourage the hurting and suffering? And maybe what are some things we shouldn't do and things we shouldn't say to people who are going through heck? As I mentioned yesterday, part of what I'm sharing below is from my first book, Unshackled, Facing Suffering with the Real Jesus and Not the Shack or Pop Culture Christianity, which does hold the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest book by a, a book title by an unknown author. Now, if you are interested in that book, it is a breakdown of the movie and the book The Shack, how it really doesn't deal with suffering in a biblical way, and maybe how we should deal with suffering in a biblical way. You can find the book on Amazon and probably lots of other places too. I have been in pastoral ministry for a little over 25 years. And in that time, I've ministered to dozens, I guess, families who are mourning the death of those nearest to them. Some of the deaths are more, I don't know if bearable is the right word, but some of the deaths are more bearable than others if death can in any way, shape, or form be bearable at all. I've done the funeral for a lovely World War II veteran of D-Day who had been married to his wife for somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 years. That was hard. And I'm sure it still was hard for his wife because she survived him by several years. I cannot imagine being separated from my wife of 24 years. How much more difficult must it be to be separated from a spouse of 70 years? The funeral was sad. There was a lot of tears and grieving. 
but it was also kind of celebratory, rejoicing in a faithful marriage of almost 50, 70 years and celebrating the life of a remarkable man who had lived a long and amazing life. Some of the funerals I've done, on the other hand, are just nothing but grieving, mourning, tears, tragedy, and incredible sadness. Many years ago, while I was still a young Greenhorn youth ministry uh, minister, I was summoned to the hospital late one night due to a wreck involving one of our youth. I'll never forget that night, sitting next to this young man's mom and dad in the surgical waiting room as we awaited news on what was going on with her son. When the surgeon walked in, he had this kind of grim, stolid look on his face, and he very coldly and callously told this young man's parents that his their son had their only son had died on the operating table. Now that night was twenty years ago, but I can still clearly hear the gut shredding wail of his mom in my mind and the look on her face as she mourned the death of her only child. It was heartbreaking, and there were no words that night that could make it any better. And the surgeon's communication and lack of compassion really only added to the misery, though I'm sure he did the best he could on the the surgery. Another funeral involved a family that I did not know at all, but our church had helped them with food previously, and thus they asked our church to provide a pastor for the funeral. In this particular tragedy, a very young married couple had a lovely baby that was killed one night when the husband got either drunk or stoned or both and inadvertently rolled over on the baby that they were co-sleeping with and smothered him. Both the husband and the wife were at the funeral, as was their family, and they wanted me to share words of comfort and hope into what seemed for all the world like an absolutely hopeless situation. So what do we say in situations like that? Maybe you've never faced a scenario quite like the one above, and maybe you aren't in ministry, but look, I guarantee that you will multiple times in your life, multiple times this year, you're going to be the friend or family member of someone who has lost a loved one to death or a tragedy in the neighborhood of that caliber. And they're going to look to you for support, love, help, and comfort. How do you handle that? What can you say to make things better? Well, here's one of the most important things to remember about ministering to people who are suffering. It is likely that you do not have the power in that moment to make things better with your words. And when we try to make things better, we end up saying things that, you know, maybe are factually untrue or a meaningless cliche. And in doing something, it's actually more likely that we're going to make things worse. So let's read our Job passages together, and then we're going to come back and discuss what we should not say to those who are suffering. Job chapter 17, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible My spirit is broken, my days are extinguished, a graveyard awaits me, surely mockers surround me and my eyes must gaze at their rebellion. Accept my pledge, put up security for me, who else will be my sponsor? You've closed their minds to understanding, therefore you will not honor them. If a man denounces his friends for a price, the eyes of his children will fail." He has made me an object of scorn to the people. I have become a man that people spit at. My eyes have grown dim from grief and my whole body has become a shadow. The upright are appalled at this and the innocent are aroused against the godless. Yet the righteous person will hold to his way and the one whose hands are clean will grow stronger. 
But come back and try again, all of you. I will not find a wise man among you. My days have slipped by. My plans have been ruined. Even the things dear to my heart, they turned night into day and made light seem near in the face of darkness. If I await Sheol as my home, spread out my bed in darkness and say to corruption, you are my father, and to the maggot, you are my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Will it go down to the gates of Sheol, or will we descend together to the dust? Chapter 18 Then Bildad the Shuite replied, How long until you stop talking? Show some sense, and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle, as stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, should the earth be abandoned on your account, or a rock be removed from its place? Yes, the light of the wicked is extinguished. The flame of his fire does not glow. The light in his tent grows dark, and the lamp beside him is put out. His powerful stride is shortened, and his own schemes trip him up. For his own feet led him into a net, and he stays into its mesh. A trap catches him by the heel, a noose seizes him, a rope lies hidden for him on the ground, and a snare waits for him along the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and harass him at every step. His strength is depleted. Disaster lies ready for him to stumble. Parts of his skin are eaten away. Death's firstborn consumes his limbs. He's ripped from the security of his tent and marched away to the king of terrors. Nothing he owned remains in his tent. Burning sulfur is scattered over his home. His roots below dry up and his branches above wither away. All memory of him perishes from the earth. He has no name anywhere. He is driven from light to darkness and chased from the inhabited world. He has no children or descendants among his people, no survivor where he used to live. Those in the west are appalled at his fate and those in the east tremble in horror. Indeed, such is the dwelling of the unjust man, and this is the place of one who does not know God? Gracious. Well, among the top five worst things to say to those who have lost a loved one is what Bildad said to Job there, which is essentially, when are you going to shut up talking so we can instruct you? (laughs) I don't have that on my list of top five worst things, but that's pretty bad. And some of the other things Job's dumb friends say to him are also pretty bad, which is why at the end of the book of Job, God rebukes them and tells them he's going to pretty much utterly destroy them unless Job prays for them and makes sacrifices for them. So here are five really horrible things that I have heard people actually say to those who are grieving as, you know, in a in terms of being a pastor, I've overheard this kind of thing. And maybe a brief word on why maybe we should never say these things. So this is the top five worst things to say to those who have lost a loved one. Number one, God needed a new angel in heaven. Ugh, please don't say this ever to anybody. First of all, how in the world can this expression, as false as it is, ever be comforting to somebody that's lost a child or a mom or a dad or a spouse. God was running short on something, so he, the God of everything who has everything, actually took a child or loved one from me. It's a cruel statement. It's not comforting at all, not really in the least. 
Secondly, it's not even remotely true. The Bible nowhere teaches that people become angels when they die. In fact, when Christians die, they become like Jesus with a body like his. For instance, Philippians 3, 20-21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control— will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I remember a few years ago when two people in an online internet discussion thread were mourning the death of somebody who was really one of my heroes, Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. And one of the persons used the old, God needed an angel line. Uh. And another one said, To lose a father is something a child should never go through, but today God needed a new angel and he just wanted the best. Please don't use that expression. God does not kill people to stock up on his angelic army. It doesn't work like that and it's not comforting. Right, number two, kind of alluded to in the last one. God only takes the best. Well, this is kind of foolish and completely illogical, Because God takes everybody, (laughs) we all die. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once. We're all going to die, the best of us and the worst of us, and everybody in between. Please don't tell people that God only takes the best. It just doesn't make any sense. It's not accurate, and it's really, really confusing. I don't think it's comforting at all. Number three. Well, at least you didn't dot, 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 or be thankful that dot, dot, dot. There are many ways a phrase like that sort of ends, but most of the time it's something like, at least you still have your other children, or at least you still have your husband or your wife or your dog or your PlayStation 4 or whatever. At least you had a few years with them before they left, or be thankful they didn't have to suffer too long. The The thing is, Look, I know, I get it. We've all said dumb things to people who are suffering, but none of those phrases are comforting. And they're all kind of petty, really. Essentially, the message is stop whining about this death or this tragedy and be happy, at least about this one little thing, because your misery is sort of, you know, making me feel kind of bad. If you were tempted to try to console somebody with a sentence that begins, at least you, dot, 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 then please stop and reconsider. And yes, it is good to be thankful always, but ordering a grieving person to be thankful is really kind of insensitive, and it's completely unaware of the Ecclesiastes 3 verse 4 dynamic. There is a time to laugh and a time to mourn. And telling somebody, hey, stop, be thankful, when they're in that mourning period is not really helpful. It maybe causes them to feel a little bit of guilt about their mourning when in fact it is perfectly right and appropriate for them to be mourning. You can be thankful in your mourning, but you don't have to stop mourning to be thankful. Number four, worst thing to say to people who are mourning and suffering. I know how you feel. Now here's the thing. We're humans, and we do often think in metaphors and comparisons. Mourning death is one of those places where We should, generally speaking, avoid this at all costs. Now, when somebody has lost a child, 
The only people who truly know at least a little bit about how they feel are other people who have lost a child. When somebody's lost a spouse, the only people who really know how it feels is people who have lost a spouse. You know, if somebody has lost somebody terribly close to them, it's not really a good comparison, nor is it helpful in any way to say, well, you know, I know how you feel. I had a pet salamander one time that died, and it was really sad. When somebody's lost a parent or a spouse, the, the only people who know the, how they feel are people who've lost a parent or spouse or, or child. If you're comforting somebody who is mourning a loss that is exactly like one you've experienced, then yes, absolutely, it is kind and comforting and soothing to share your grief with them. But even then, it's rarely encouraging to sort of use the phrase, I know how you feel. We probably should be really, really careful with this expression, as generally speaking, I don't know how you feel. And you probably don't know how I feel, And honestly, half the time, I don't know how I feel either. So be very careful with that expression. Even though their situation might somehow look on the surface exactly the same as one you've been through before, chances are that there are many differences beneath the surface. And chances are further, even if it's exactly the same, they're going to be reacting to it differently. So you don't have to say, I know how you feel. You can say if you're if it's if it's somebody who's lost a spouse or, or gone through something similar to what you've gone through, you can tell them that. You know, but be careful with comparisons. Finally, number five, telling people who've just suffered a great loss or going through a catastrophe, God has a plan. And look, I'm a Reformed Baptist guy here. He does indeed have a plan. He is completely sovereign and in control. His sovereignty isn't harsh, and he loves us with an everlasting and unfathomable love even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He has a plan. He's always working out his plan. And yet, if somebody doesn't have a very deep biblical understanding of the loving nature of God in his sovereignty, then this statement isn't very comforting at all. Even those for those who do understand a passage like, for instance, Romans 8, 28, 29, in a very deep way, passage that says God is working out all things for the good of those who know him and are called according to his purpose. Even then, when you're going through tragedy, the phrase God has a plan, it can be flummoxing. Why does God's plan involve the death of my loved one? I mean, it absolutely will involve that at time. We're all going to die. But God has a plan, but it's not necessarily comforting words to give people the theology of sovereignty right in the middle of what they're going through. Think about it this way. Can you imagine Peter and John going over to Jesus when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and great drops of blood are coming off of him like sweat and those guys putting their arms around him and saying, hey, don't worry, master, God has a plan. Jesus knew that and he was still in anguish and suffering. And so it might not be the most comforting thing. In that situation, it sort of looked like Jesus was looking for those guys to just watch and pray with him. So those are a few phrases that really should be avoided. In fact, 
here's the thing. The whole idea that we can share a sentence or two or even just a little phrase with somebody and actually help or comfort them is an idea which, with very rare exceptions, should be avoided. Grieving with those who grieve rarely involves the sharing of a pithy saying or two and then going about your day. Rather, grieving with those who grieve far more often involves walking beside them, listening to them, praying for them, crying for them, with them, and just simply being there. Those who are suffering don't usually need a sentence or two to feel better. They need something far deeper than that. They need a deeper investment of us than just a word or two. So in tomorrow's episode number 50, we will cover some helpful things to say to those who are suffering, and some helpful ways to say those things. I hope you can join us then. For now, let me close with Nancy Guthrie. Uh, She wrote, her and her husband have lost two children. She's been through incredible grief. She wrote an article on Desiring God. I quoted it from it yesterday about uh, how to minister to those who are grieving. I'm going to add a little bit more to the quote I used yesterday, and this is what she says. Here's the truth. When you've gone through the loss of a loved one, it's almost as if there's a barrier put up between you and every person in your world. And it's not until that person acknowledges your loss that that barrier comes down. And it doesn't have to be anything brilliant. And sometimes it can even be wordless. I can think of times, says Guthrie, when I was going through grief when someone just came next to me and squeezed my hand or gave me even a knowing look with that sense of, I know what's going on and I'm sad and I'm in a sense speechless. And then one of the really beautiful things some people did was actually to weep in my presence. And I know that sounds awkward for some people, I think especially men. I know for my husband, says Guthrie, he wouldn't say, wow, I was really hoping people would come and cry with me. That wasn't the form his grief took. But for many of us, when you're carrying this huge load of sorrow and you look up and you see someone who is shedding tears, that they are so identifying with your loss that they are in a sense carrying some of the load of sorrow for you, That's an incredible gift to give someone who's grieving. So let's consider that. Let's consider doing exactly what the Bible says. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died, but the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt, and he said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. 
So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with how difficult, with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shifra and the second whose name was Puah, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, You must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile River, but let every daughter live. Luke chapter 4 verse 1 Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, quote, He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your feet against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a long time. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. He came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, 
Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum do here in your hometown also. He also said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, and yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him off the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit who cried out with a loud voice, Leave us alone! What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent and come out of him. And throwing him down before them, the demon came out of him without hurting him at all. Amazement came over them all, and they were all saying to one another, What is this message for? He commands the unclean spirits with authority and power, and they come out. And news about him began to go out to every place in the vicinity. After he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up immediately and began to serve them. When the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. As he laid his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Also, demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, "'You are the Son of God!' But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. When it was day, he went out and made his way to a deserted place, but the crowds were searching for him. They came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them, but he said to them, It is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and that the kind of sexual immorality that isn't even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are arrogant? Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body... I am present in the Spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You're Boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? 
Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with the old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this word or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business of mine is it to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Well, that's challenging, isn't it? May we take the word of God to heart, obey it, believe it, follow it, and live it. Good day to you, friends, and Godspeed.